Hi, everyone. It's Dr. Denise. This is the Dr. Denise Show. This is the Rocking a Betrayal series, and I have founder of lovefraud.com and author of eight books, eight books, right, Donna Anderson? Yes, eight books. <laughs> Back here. But more importantly, we are trying to take a strategic deep dive on different things that can actually, different characteristics, different neuro styles of people who could end up being the ones who are less than honest or controlling or having different types of uh, pathological neuro styles. And Donna and I were talking off show, and I'm an adult and child psychiatrist, as you all know, and Donna has incredible research in her senior sociopath book. Donna, can you just do a brief overview of that book, and then we can decide which topic we're going to deep dive on? Yes. Well, thank you, Denise. And it's so great to be with you again. And um, my most recent book, which came out last year, is called Senior Sociopaths, How to Recognize and Escape Lifelong Abusers. And the inspiration for this book is because uh, I was married to a man who turned out to be a con artist. And after I divorced him, he was diagnosed as a psychopath. And um, there's this rumor going around the mental health field that psychopaths and people with antisocial personality disorder mellow out and stop their uh, antisocial behavior as they get into their 40s and older. And this was always a mystery to me because my ex-husband was 55 when I met him and and it, it just got worse. I mean, this man took a quarter million dollars from me. He cheated on me. He had a child with another woman and he was 55 years old. So I'm like, well, this doesn't make any sense. This doesn't certainly fit the idea that he's mellowing out um, because I also know that he did it to other women after me. So what I did was a survey with love fraud readers that had uh, 2,400 responses between the two surveys, and it was specifically asking questions about people who believed that they were involved with someone with a personality disorder and was over the age of 50. And the reason that I picked 50 was because if they were supposedly getting better by 40, by 50, you should see a, an improvement. And the bottom line is that 91% of my survey respondents who knew the person both before and after age 50 said that their behavior was just as bad or worse after age 50. And this was the reason that I wrote the book, because people need to know that if you're involved with someone who is disordered and has antisocial, narcissistic, borderline, histrionic, or psychopathic personality disorder, they are not going to get better. And you need to factor that into your decisions about how you respond to this person. I love that. That's the golden nugget of the show, is that after age 50, if someone's had a long-standing set of personality traits, characteristics, lies, frauds, and <clears throat> also what I like to say, when people's words, thoughts, and actions are not consistently adding up. <laughs> the yes. red flag. So I appreciate, thank you, Donna, for the alchemy. I've thanked you before in previous shows, but really 
for everyone, if you're, you've had any trauma happen to you, the highest level of mastering it is going into the suffering and then helping others being of service. So I always talk about awareness, self-love and altruism is fundamental for good mental health. And what Donna's done with her founding of love fraud, Dot com platform and all the books she's done is she's gathered data. And I also love data. So I just want to say thank you, Donna, to you and your team for taking the time to also not only get the data, but produce books in a way that people can read. So can you just, we've done this, I think last year, but can you just go through the chapter titles and then we'll deep dive on one topic today of the senior sociopath book? Yeah, sure. I can certainly do that. So um, I start out with an introduction and basically make the point there that approximately 14 million people in the United States are probably over the age of 50 and sociopathic. So this is a big problem. There's millions of them all around us. Um, My first chapter, I talk about romantic partners and And this is a dating situation because plenty of people uh, age 50 and over are back on the dating market or looking for a partner if they're divorced or widowed or still looking. So um, I I have a lot of stories there about people who encountered as over the age of 50, someone who was disordered. Um, Then I explain the psychology of these uh, disorders in chapter two and Uh, where this whole burnout idea came from, uh, which is what I disproved that no, the sociopaths don't burn out, they they keep going. Then chapter three is about marriage to a sociopath. And chapter four is about senior sociopaths as parents. And then chapter five is other members of the family who could be disordered. And then I talk about senior sociopaths as neighbors and work and work colleagues. And then um, I do go into criminal behavior over age 50 in chapter seven. And then chapter eight and nine are how to deal with uh, these folks if they're in your life. And then also how to recover and rebuild your life if you've had a devastating experience with a senior sociopath. Well, and I love what you've done in the different chapters. So I feel like the actual vignettes that you've gathered from the tens of thousands of people that you've met with your platform. I love vignettes because people like to hear examples and then the why. And a lot of what's happened throughout the book is a lot of myth busting. And so I'd love to like deep dive into chapter four about the children of the sociopaths because I, I'm, it's really interesting as I was, I always have this routine where I like light a candle. I, have a nice little breakfast. I then think, oh, yay, I get to talk to Donna today. I like prepare myself. And I was like, I had two people in my practice that in the most recent probably five years have had very severely, they're like the adult children now. You know, there's like the adult children of alcoholics, but they're the adult children of severe narcissists and sociopaths to the point where they've had to, to completely not have a relationship. And it was interesting because I was thinking of examples because I know you were going to jump in, but I'm going to, I'll share those in a minute, but I was, it, it really was very crystal clear. There's some absolute characteristics to look for 
in parents that are having these tendencies. And I'd love for you to give some insight based on your findings in this chapter in this book. Well, one of the main things that I did was I asked the survey respondents how people who were disordered and over the age of 50 treated their children. And it's actually divided into two sections. It's divided into how they treated minor children and then how they treated their adult children. And the key finding, if you compare the two, is that the treatment never gets any better. They're abusive and cold and indifferent to the kids when they're young, and then they continue to take advantage of them and berate them and criticize them when they're older. So it's no wonder that you have folks who, you know, are their lives and their personalities have been shredded by these experiences because it it just never stops. So uh, if you like, I could talk about some of the um, main ways that the parents treated their children, if you'd like me to do that? Yeah, I would love that. And then as you give an example, I know, just like I said, when I was getting ready to have this interview with you, I will respond to some examples or ways that I've helped people, because I'm, I'm on the other line where people call up and they might be suffering or feeling alone, or how do I have intimate relationships? So yes, that would be fantastic. Okay, well, um, first, I'll talk about the main ways that the adults treated their minor children. And I should point out also that I asked this question of multiple audiences. In other words, there was a general question of, do you know how this person as a parent treated their children um, while they were over the age of 50? And that question could be answered by people who were describing their own parents. It could be answered by Um, people who had children with the disordered individual, there there were former uh, spouses or romantic partners. It could also be answered by people who were currently in or were romantic partners, although they did not share children with the individual. And then it could be answered by folks who were what I call it outside observers, other family members, neighbors, something along those lines. So uh, we were getting feedback from all those different groups. But anyway, um, the main way that folks who are disordered and over the age of 50 treated their minor children was that they were cold and indifferent to the children. And and that was recorded by 26% of the survey respondents. And then the next most common way that they treated them was that they were abusive or harsh to their children, which was uh, 24%. And then uh, the next one was that they were inconsistent, superficial, or fake. In other words, they they did not engage in real parenting. They, you know, were just some of them treated their children like friends or, um, you know, just some, or they were just Disneyland dads and, and not concerned, or Disneyland moms, and you know not really concerned about the the children, and that was recorded by seventeen percent of the survey respondents. And then the next most impo- um, common description was that these parents treated the children as objects, possessions, or that the children were all about them. In other words, you know one of the things that typically happened was that the these parents were more concerned about how the kids made them look than 
they were concerned about the children's well-being for their own growth and development. And that was recorded by about 13% of um, survey respondents. And then the, the, then there was 11% of each of the following. 11% said these parents were critical and disdainful. They were controlling or enabling. And they also engaged in parental alienation. So those were the most common traits that were recorded by the survey respondents about how these folks treated their children. Wow. Well, I can think of the very first one was the cold and indifferent. And I, it's really interesting because I actually have, um, you know, I, I have sort of a letter that was shared with me just recently. And I, I, let's just put it this way. There's a lot of mirroring I, uh, in a situation with the cold and indifferent. What I've seen with the adults that I've treated that have gone through this, let's say they have been estranged from their adult sociopathic or narcissistic parent and that parent's trying to reconnect with them. In both situations that I know of in my practice recently, the letters that they received were all about blaming the child for their bad behavior and neglect, which was exactly the, the opposite of what I believed to have happened. Of course, you know, the, in a scientific world, I would have interviewed both people in this, but when you hear all the data with their childhood. And so let me just say this, this is one line. Cause I don't think this would, uh, a letter that someone received from a, a parent that was estranged from them, just one line that they did to the kid you are cruel all by yourself. Don't pretend otherwise and wait for karma to come to you. Oh, geez. And that's the way they ended the letter. And they ended it with your father. I mean, I'm not reading the rest of it because of out of confidentiality, but I mean, can you, I mean, how did, when you hear that, what does that, what kind of bells go off for you when you just hear that one line of a, a parent that's been, what, 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 what comes to mind for you? Well, what comes to mind for me is that it's so typical of all the stories that I heard of. Exactly. <laughs> right? It's like, it's like almost like it's like its own poster child for, because there's the blaming, there's the lack of parental attachment. It's literally like um, it's the cold and indifferent. And it's also that the children are more like the objects of what you're supposed to do for them instead of having that parental attachment, the healthy parental give and take nurturing, protecting your child. It's like the exact opposite of all the things you would hope for. I have heard so many stories exactly like that. And in all honesty, one of the healthiest thing that um, someone who has grown up with a parent like that to do is to go no contact. Yes. You know, yeah. and I have a term for that. Um, and it's really interesting, Donna. Oftentimes people take, it's really sad in, in my viewpoint. And I'm proud of the people that really work to try to have relationships. A lot of times these are human beings that I've actually seen both of the individuals that I'm thinking of right now have had the resiliency to attract healthy partners, to have children, to do the work on themselves. 
But then they were like, well, wait a second. I want to see if I could ever reconcile. And when they get to the point of what you just said, where they've done every angle of trying to have a healthy relationship with someone that has these longstanding character flaws, the, the actually the don't engage or not having them in your life is one of the most difficult things that I have to help people work through. And I call it a living loss mm-hmm. because the person is not passed away, but it's literally grieving the idea of the parental role model or the parent you wish you had, but you know by having them in your life that it's the opposite of nurturing. It's the opposite of helpful. And it's really um, neglectful and harmful to not only your mental health, but often to um, your children as well. Yes. And, you know, it's it's interesting because um, my best friend when I was growing up in, in high school her mother was a raging psychopath. I mean, you know, I could see it now at, at the time. I didn't know what it was. Um, but, I mean, the stories that I heard, you know, from what my friend experienced were, were, were just, you know, make your hair stand up. It, it, it was just awful. But towards the end of her mother's life, my friend actually took her mother in, you know, because she was old. She needed to be somewhere, you know, they and... And I, I was like, you know, why would you do that? And, and she said, well, you know, it was, it was still my mother. And, and she said, you can't stop wanting to have your mother love you, you know? Mm-hmm. And the thing was that, you know, she was hoping, you know, maybe on this woman's deathbed that she would finally admit, well, you know, maybe I treated you badly or maybe, you know, uh, that I, I did love you after all. It never happened. In fact, she told me that um, her mother was passing in, in, in the process and she brought a chaplain in to her home and the mother pretended that she was asleep so that she wouldn't interact with the chaplain. And as they left the room, you know, my friend looked back and, and saw her open her eyes. She didn't want to engage. She never to the very end expressed love or admitted that she did anything wrong. Right. Right. And you know what's coming to mind, too, when I'm thinking of other examples, I've had situations where um, people are healing from sexual abuse from a relative. And the, there's also, I don't know if it's the accomplice, the, the person who's culpable, the one parent who knows, like, let's say if it's um, an uncle or a cousin, and there's so much shame within a family system that someone's mother just said, oh, we can't tell, da-da-da. Like, it became this family secret. Mm-hmm. And it's another interesting type of narcissism and borderline personality. Like, who has, and then maybe I'll ask you this in your research with in, in the goal of, like, us protecting children, who, what kind of research do you have of, like, mothers who don't, to do nothing as a child's either being sexually abused by any type of relative, whether it's their father, their uncle, their cousin, uh, or the, like a, a boyfriend, if the, if the mom's um, not married, what do you have any data on that or any comments that we can just sort of discuss? Cause that happens a lot. There's a lot of uh, when there's incest involved 
And there's, you know, we're hopefully living in a point where kids are at school and they're learning to tell their teachers, go to their social workers, so that Department of Children and Family Services. But a lot of times there's these family secrets of lying, manipulation, and abuse, whether it's mental, physical, or sexual. And I think the person doing it can be almost like the almost like the classic sociopath, narcissist, and predator. But what about the person who just stands by silently in their profile? Well, a couple of things. First of all, I definitely have heard anecdotally those kind of stories. And yeah, you know, I've heard folks tell admit to me that they were personally abused and one or the other parent didn't do anything. Um, I've had parents tell me that they discovered much to their horror that their former their ex, their former husband or or, or spouse was abusing one of the kids and, and they're devastated because of this. So I've I've definitely heard those stories. Um, one of the things I, I would I would say there's probably two aspects to the the bystander parent. One of which is that the parent may also be disordered, the the other parent, and the second could possibly be that the bystander parent is traumatized. That yes, yes, they they simply do not have the capacity to protect their kids. And I've heard of plenty of situations like that where, you know, the, the, the other parent just was so beaten down and so unable to protect their children that there, there was, they didn't have the energy to do anything. Hmm. Wow. Wow. So I, from a hopeful standpoint, then I want to dig into another. I'm just, I'm like here on chapter four, right in, as we speak with this quote uh, that says, dad's a sociopath in one of the situations. But I want to, what you just said, I want to give people hope that I've seen people really heal through childhood incest, rape. There's, it's just like any sort of betrayal when a parent or a loved one or a relative betrays the child, whether it's emotional, physical, or sexual neglect. You know, I've seen many people after some therapy that I, you know, maybe they've had their own diagnoses or no diagnoses. I've seen people go on to have incredible lives, pick good partners, but you have to kind of build yourself to back together because when you're in um, an abusive situation, you're shattered and you have to it's like you actually have to create your own new reality. And I love this example in chapter four with Travis when he went away uh, to college, how he realized what it was like to not be having daily abuse by his father. Can we, I don't know if, if you're familiar. I mean, you, you, this is your book, but I, I love that story and that vignette. Can we, can we go a little deeper on that? Well, uh, yeah. I mean, to me, that particular story is probably one of the most powerful in the book. And uh, essentially, it's about a family where um, the firstborn child had a disability in that um, she was intellectually brilliant, but had very poor social skills. And um, because of that, the parents were afraid that they would have another disabled child. So they adopted two kids. And Travis was the first adopted son, 
and he was treated as the black sheep of the family. Now, what was totally interesting about this story is that this was an extremely wealthy family. The mother came from generations of wealth. The father was a university professor, and essentially what he was most interested in was acquiring the mother's wealth. And he had he 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 beat her down but not in a physical sense, but in a sense where he questioned her mental ability to the point that she was also not able to uh, protect the kids. And it wasn't until Travis, uh, you know, went away to college and finally started to see what was going on. So the hope that you want to talk about is for folks to realize that if their parent is disordered, I mean, first of all, to be able to recognize that, you know, because when you're a kid and you, you can't, you don't understand what's going on. You don't understand, you know, why your father is, is yelling at you or your mother is is demanding that you meet her needs or, or any of those situations. So it's important to recognize that the problem was always the parent, you know, because kids internalize it. Kids think I'm doing something wrong. And, you know, then they take on they become people pleasers, uh, they, they walk on eggshells, and, and they take on these traits, which are essentially survival mechanisms when they're a kid, but it carries over into adulthood. So the hope is recognizing that it was never your fault, it was never you, that your parent did not treat you appropriately, uh, they didn't, they weren't the parent, and, you know, once you can start to get that in your head, then perhaps you can start to unravel the emotional um, ways that you coped about this and, and figure out another way to move forward. Yeah. And I love the, the healing part of that story. So first of all, I want to just go ahead and give like, I'm going to read a paragraph about that. So in this Travis story, the dad was Franklin. So let me just read this. It's on page 112 of your book. Franklin had already convinced Joyce that she was helpless and mentally unfit. She took a lot of medication that interfered with cognition, making her dependent on her husband's logic and choices. Although, this is what Travis says, although she is worth tens of millions of dollars, I once witnessed her calling my father for permission to buy a pair of flip-flops at the beach. So, I mean... It's, I want to, can we unpack this? Because we've got the father who is Franklin and we've got the, you know, the gaslighting or what the sociopaths do. It's like they convince you of a new reality. Mm -hmm. They worsen it. So that what they do is they target your weaknesses and then pound you with that. And I think that paragraph is a great paragraph to unpack because that's a common story in these situations, whether it's this one or others? Well, the mother just had a lifetime of being told that she was incompetent. And, you know, the way Travis talks about it, it got to the point, there was one description that he had that was just amazing to me. He, he said that his father wore his mother like a skin. And the, the oh. father just totally controlled the mother. And he, he would the father would whisper to the mother, you know, well, Travis did this and Travis did that, none of which was true. But then the mother would turn around and react to this. And it, it got to the point where, you know, she was totally controlled 
um, by her husband. And that was his goal all along. And interestingly enough, you know, I mean, there was incredible amount of money in the family. And um, once her, the, the mother's, Joyce's mother's, um, her, her father died. And so she inherited more money, you know, even, and, 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 um, and then at that point, Tra- uh, Travis's father essentially took control of all the trusts and all the inheritances and started giving the money away, not leaving any for the family, for the kids, um, because he wanted to be seen as a philanthropist. Oh my goodness. Wow. Did any, was there any repercussions in that story or did it just go on where he was hemorrhaging out the legacy? There were no real repercussions. No. That's incredibly sad. I, um, I'm here in Southern California and I'm just thinking about the wins that I've seen happen. Meaning, you know, I have a situation where I help someone to grieve the loss of like a toxic ex-husband or we're talking about children, like adult children. And honestly, Donna, it takes year, almost um, not almost like years of healing. If you, your entire childhood were verbally abused, emotionally neglected, you know, it take, it can almost take, I don't know what the, I don't, I haven't looked up the data on this, but I can tell you from my clinical practice, if you find the right clinician, if you do your own healthy habits, it's almost like you have to realize if you're in your 20s or 30s or even whatever age you are listening to this, you can heal from this, but you have to do a lot of your own self-love and your own parenting because you don't even know what that looks like. You don't know what it looks like to have someone be there for you in a time of duress where it's not just about them. So this actually affects multiple generations because if you've had a parent that's a sociopath or um, or you're recovering from incest, it's really important that you get the right layers of professional help, especially if you're going to have children so that this just doesn't cycle through um, multiple generations to come. And that's so true. And there, there are um, many cases of generational abuse. And, you know, unfortunately, if, if someone does have either psychopathy or antisocial personality disorder, this condition is highly genetic itself. So that's another reason to um, work on yourself because there is an interaction between the genetics and the environment. So, you know, if you have children, you need to learn how to parent them in a different way so that hopefully if they have inherited the predisposition to these disorders, that it doesn't actually kick in. You know, I... I want to just lightly touch on this. Uh, It's almost like, so it's like I'm at the front lines of this. I am, I have the most amazing, amazing teen son that I adopted at birth. And I feel like, and I would like to take this away from a discussion about him because everyone's heard him on my son, my teacher, and he's just a joy, but he's full of charisma And I also, in my own biological family, um, I feel really fortunate that my own father got sober when I was 11. Now, I don't believe my dad was a sociopath at all. I just believe that there's a long line of generational alcoholism on my mom and dad's side of the family. And I feel like my brother and my sister, they have incredible jobs, families, 
And I feel like it's been almost like a break the cycle with that, you know, being mindful of your own genetics, whether it be alcoholism, mood, whatnot. But when you're talking about generational sociopathy, um, I'd love for you to talk about um, how gen- the nature versus nurture of your data of what you've seen maybe of children that were adopted and their birth parents had propensities to addiction or sociopathy because, you know, I'm at that crucial, crucial time, Donna, where I've decided to rearrange my whole schedule. And I have been doing this for years now where I do all the pickups and all the drops up drop offs of my son, because I believe that if there's any genetic predisposition towards making bad choices, you have to replace them with healthy habits, structure, conversation, why. So in, in my home, every night, even when it's raining, my son always wants to go to the jacuzzi with me to talk. And that's where he gives me examples of what's going on on the teen, sort of the teen yard with flirting, the teen yard. Um, there's some vaping going on in his school. And he's told, he's really honest. He told me, you know, he looked up the seven stages of nicotine addiction and he's been saying no to vaping. And Donna, I talk with him and I've done the show. The very first show I ever did was called protect your brain. And so I feel like this is an important share for anyone out there that's raising a child or if it's yourself trying to heal from past wounds, um, you can make consistent, good, healthy choices of how you treat others. I talk with him. Are you being respectful? Did you say no? How are you protecting your brain? Because if you're already hardwired for addiction or hardwired to break the rules or hardwired to game the system or hardwired, I feel like I'm at the front lines as a single adoptive mom. They're showing up for my son, making great choices and examples. Like Donna, I don't have alcohol in my home. You know, a lot of where I live in Southern Cal and Manhattan beach, a lot of really, a lot of parents crack open the alcohol every day. It's like almost like a milieu environment here in a wealthy community. And I'm the doctor for a lot of these kids and for the adults. And it's like, how do you expect a teen or someone to make good choices if you're not, if you're consistently not making good choices? And I just explained that to my son, like we have addiction in our family and, and I, may, I don't shame either. I take the shame. I said, your birth family and my birth family, we have to protect our brain. Papa got sober, you know, your birth mom got sober. And so I feel like for children and teens to sort of break the cycle, whether it's of addiction or knowing their own unique neuro style, if they have ADHD or mood symptoms, you want to have optimal thrive potential for that person's set of genetics and then influence the environment around it. So it's a lot of work though. I just want to tell you, Donna, I'm living, I would say I'm in the most humbled time of my life where I feel like every decision I make is to make sure I'm showing up consistently for my son and that he's supervised appropriately. And I feel like breaking the cycle of a sociopath uh, possibility or of an addiction possibility is something that's not an easy task. Well, you're absolutely right. And it sounds to me like you've already laid the groundwork because essentially when you're dealing with somebody who has a 
a predisposition, a genetic predisposition to possibly become disordered. Mm-hmm. What, what they need is to be taught how to love. Okay. Yes. Because that, that is what's missing. That is, you know, what, can, what I, they can f- we just say this again? Dama just said, ding, 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 ding. If there's disordered generational issues with attachment, manipulation, or sociopathy, they need to be taught how to love. And I believe it's genetics plus environment. So keep going. Yes. And because this is actually what is lacking when someone has one of these disorders is that they do not have the ability to authentically love. And how that shows up in a young child is that they tend to be very independent. They tend to not necessarily need to be around their mother or their father or family that much. And, you know, they they really don't necessarily get all that much satisfaction um, through human relationships. So, I mean, that that is best treated when the child is very young. and, And it sounds like you did that because you have you know, shown him love and, and, uh, you know, taught him how important it is. So just by doing that, you, you've done a whole lot to really help him cope with any possibilities. Can I give a really sweet, sweet example? Oh my goodness. And this just happened last month. Um, my son's at that age where he's been now known that the world has told him that he's handsome. Right. And he, it's been a bit overwhelming and he has one of those no filter, prefrontal cortex, which all my friends say in a way it's a blessing because he's telling me the truth, right? And so I was trying to steer him when you're talking about how to love. I said, listen, it's very important, the emotions that happen when you start to have crushes, when you start to interact. In this generation of teens with Snapchat, with Instagram reels, they are sending each other I, you have to like lay the groundwork of what's appropriate and what's not. And so for Valentine's, I said, why don't you, I go, you now know that the world that you're going to have lots of opportunities to date with what's been going on. I said, I would prefer that you learn how to have a really caring, authentic, like take someone to ice cream, meet them at the pool, go to the movie. I, you know, you're, he's like, mom, that is so 1980s. And I, and I said, well, okay, but there's more to a human being than how just attractive they are. Or if a, a preteen or a, a young adult is trying, you know, is in their, you know, sexual exploration years. And I think that building a whole relationship and, you know, there's the book, The Five Languages of Love, and that's for every relationship, not just romantic. It's also for personal and business. And so I, Donna, on Valentine's Day, because he had been, um, you know, seeing someone for a couple months, I made sure I went out and I got this little bag um, that just said happy Valentine's and had some flowers in it. And I explained to him that your generation, I believe needs to learn how to have like chivalry or flowers or what that does to a relationship and how someone could feel. And so I think when you're talking about teaching someone how to love, you know, there's the different love languages and I've been, you know, I want to make sure my son's not just the good looking guy that's manipulating women because that can start a whole cycle of the sociopathy that can lead up to someone being a love fraudster, right? If you're already charismatic and everyone's throwing themselves at you at a very young age, 
even if you're in a home where you're not being raised by a sociopath, I feel like you really have to put a lot of lot of um, checks and balances. In my practice, I see this. Um, I've been, you know, I've got like 45,000 hours of patient uh, clinical hours of all ages. But I think that it's a lot of work, I think, for parents to set the healthy lattice for someone to learn how to love, whether there's a sociopathy um, parent or not, because kids are also being raised. I think this segues in a lot of people are looking to certain influencers online that could have sociopath traits. And these kids are watching these videos and then they're brainwashed. So I just wanted to say that this is like so real for me because I'm in the thick of raising a gentleman, you know? And it's so true. You know, I mean, the social media is, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how people cope in, in all honesty, <laughs> you know, because it, it is powerful. It is influencing. And, and, you know, unless you're over looking over your uh, kid's shoulder every day, you don't know what they're seeing. And, you know, at, at the age, at teenage years, their peers are more important than their parents. 1,000%. And so what I've had to do, my sons, I really feel blessed because he's at the right school, the right neuro style. He's on spring break. We have teacher conferences today in a little bit online. And I will say I am humbled. I might have these years of clinical work, but being a good parent, consistently showing up, being there for them and having the developing, you know, the not only learning how to love but really setting the stage for moral integrity. I have a little fishbowl in the middle of my dining room table that has like this really cool love sticker that looks very hippie-ish. And it's our gratitude jar in the middle of our home. And I set out respectful behavior. Like we, we, I typed it out and he actually signed it with like turning in the phone at a certain time, not lying to me, all these different things they've had sex at at school, you know, teenage consensuality, um, teenage pregnancy, abstaining from sex as long as possible because your brain keeps developing. He knows till age 25, um, not having multiple partners, explaining that whether it's multiple sexual partners, vaping, substance use, if you have a propensity towards addiction or personality disorders, if you feed the, he gets annoyed with me when I'm like the nucleus accumbens. He's like, mom, I'm so sick of hearing about the nucleus accumbens. <laughs> you have your big talks, but I try to explain that if you expose, and I'd love for you to um, comment on any data you've gotten of the success stories of people maybe getting the right help or prevention, whether they're being raised by um, sociopathic parents, or maybe their biological parents had those traits, but now they're adopted because I'm, I'm in the thick of it, Donna. I feel like I'd like for you to just comment now because I'm every day I wake up, I feel like it's like a stop, drop and roll. How can I provide the best environment for my son? Well, I think it's fabulous that you're so focused on doing this um, because it's true that it can be difficult. You know, when, I mean, I've heard from plenty of folks who have done their best and were not able to make a difference in, in the genetics because some sometimes that happens. Sometimes uh, they call it a genetic insult. And sometimes the genetic insult is so strong that um, 
the, the environment that you provide just simply isn't enough. And um, I think one of the most important things is for people to have awareness. Um, and that's why I'm so glad that you're doing these radio shows, because um, the best time to start is when they're very young, you know, because there's there's a window when kids are really young that um, where, where you can really guide them towards appreciating human closeness. In fact, you know, one of the most important things that a parent can do, and, and I, I hear this all the time where, you know, parents have a child with somebody and then they realize, oh my God, you know, this person that I'm with is disordered. And then you've got this baby and now what do you do? Well, one of the most important things that you can do is to hold the child and to keep the child close to you physically because that helps to develop pleasure at the, at the experience of closeness, of human closeness, which is what is missing if, if they're disordered. So the earlier you can start, the better. And, you know, it sounds to me like you, you've already started that, which is fabulous. And, um, you know, and now you're, you're providing appropriate guidance to your son. Well, and I also want to tell you, and this is really neat, I actually didn't even realize that I was going to end up being this vulnerable he and I, Donna, did something really unique. He, ha he my son and I did a show called My Son, My Teacher last year, more when he was at the 12, beginning of 13 age. But once he started having these little crushes, he said, mom, that's my private stuff. I'm like, of course. And so he and I, this is unbelievable. We recorded three shows this week based on something that happened in the fall at the school where my son told the truth. I'll just say it. There was an open closet at my son's private school, and it was the same week that there was a gun threat. Oh, dear. And the gun threat resulted in, and there's been three gun threats at his private school in the last 18 months, and it was another student that ended up getting expelled. But that same week that there was the gun threat and everyone was up in arms with what the school's doing, how they're handling it, the police involved, everything, my son, I was so proud of him came home and told me that there was this open closet where the kids were going in and fooling around. Mm. And I found out from, I'm a single mom now, but I have a great relationship with his stepdad. And I found out from my, um, my, my, my ex's sister, that's a police officer detective here on the beach, that a lot of these teen kids and high school kids are going in the bathroom, they're vaping, they're fooling around. So this is a very, like I'm broadening this out to the United States, that this is very common. And my son explains that his generation sees all this, this behavior online that's so sexualized and they want to try it. He's like, we just want to try it. And I said, oh my goodness, I am so proud of you that you came to me. And he goes, well, but mom, I don't want my friends. He's in the popular group. I don't want my friends to know. And the bottom line is this. I said, you are protecting yourself. You are protecting the girls. You are protecting the school. And of course, you're a teen teen that's going to want to, like, this is just normal hormone stuff. I didn't want to shame him on the curiosity, but then it became its own entire masterclass. He and I are calling it the Closet Chronicles and what we've learned from it. And I kept him home from school that whole week of the gun safety. And I said to him, I'm not letting you go back to school until the school's been made aware that that closet's unlocked but I didn't want to do it in a way that would get anyone in trouble. Right. Because so I, I handled, I think really well, I let the school know it's been brought to my attention. 
Then I let some of the other people know later and they got it locked. But it actually, my son's like, am I in trouble? I'm like, absolutely not. You're going to get mental health days off. We're going to talk to your stepdad. And we used it as a time to talk with him about relationships, safe sex. I mean, when someone gets exposed to that possibility a couple years younger than you would have hoped, and it's in a school environment, and then you're, you, know, you also have compassion for the school because you find out that these schools now need to lock their bathrooms, right? And so when I say this, Donna, um, it's literally something that's not only have I been dealing with this kind of how do you raise a gentleman and how do you raise a teen when there's social media influencers that might be sociopaths or there, there could be a genetic predisposition to addiction or personality issues. And I think I've never been more humbled, Donna, by the amount of consistency, communication, love, showing up. One of the reasons why I'm strategically single and I can't go out of the house to do a lot of work is I like to be there for my son because that's a form of showing love when it's an act of service. So I just want to say that you've said, you've heard many stories where even if the genetics were so strong and the parents did a lot, sometimes it's hard to overcome. So I also want people to remember that if you've provided um, almost like you're the healing generation, whether it's of your own genetics or non-genetics, it's not an easy battle to, to have these new habits or fight the genetics, so to speak. It absolutely can be consuming and, and there is a lot to it, but it's, it's worth it. You know, it, I mean, I think that it's for anybody who has been in this situation and, and we could broaden it out to, you know, folks who realize that they, um, their parents were disordered. And typically the way I find this out is that when I talk to people and typically they're contacting me because of a problem with a, a relationship, uh, they've got a partner or a spouse or, or something that they realize is uh, maybe disordered. Usually they're looking for validation of, of the disorder. And after they tell me, you know, what this person's doing, it's pretty obvious that they, they probably have some level of disorder. But then we talk a little bit further, and I can't tell you how many times that they reveal that the person is just like their mother or just like their father. So, you know, it is certainly possible to have a disordered parent and then to recognize what's going on and then to work on your own recovery. And even when you're working on yourself, it, it does take time. Uh, it takes time to release all those negative ideas. It takes time to figure out you know, how to care for yourself and how to be good to yourself. But it is absolutely worth it, you know, because if you can put yourself first and do your emotional work, you can have the type of life that you really want. And, and it's, it's, it takes time. It's a bumpy ride, but it is absolutely worth the effort. You know, I just want to finish. You just, we just summarized, but that Travis example, um, where the quote said when Travis and his sister were getting close and realizing the sociopathic behavior of the father, I actually want to say this. And I, I think this is very important. My professional opinion as an adult and child psychiatrist is that knowledge is power. Knowing your genetics, knowing the risk factors, 
saying it and not leaning into what used to be shame and talking about it. I will tell you, my son has met his birth mom, but now he just wants it to be him and I. But when she was visiting with his half brother in 2019, um, she's really thriving. She's now got a career in nursing. We had, I, cause I said to her, you know, can you talk with him about protecting your brain? So she gave him a little overview of what it was like when she was learning how to protect her own brain recently and what the family genetics were. And I don't even know when I think about it, anyone that's had this really lovely opportunity to have had a relationship with the birth mom where she'd be willing to do that. So it was a real tangible when my son was age 10, here are some of the family genetics And then I paired it with later of, oh, do you see how she's thriving now? She's got a nursing career, but it's really important that you protect your brain. And then I don't want him to feel like he's because he's adopted that he and I aren't similar. And that's when I've normalized it with saying, well, Papa, which is my daddy calls him Papa, Papa got overcame his. So people can really look at what's going on and they can do great things, make good choices. So I think the old ways of mental health and the old ways of talking about sociopath, fraud, shame, personality disorder, addiction, abuse, I believe that you've got to go into the the data and the knowing, and then you have to build a framework of mental wellness and integrity success every day. I'd say that's a wonderful plan. Well, Donna, thank you so much. I feel like your book, the Senior Sociopath book, each chapter is so rich. And what I really like about it is if you're just grabbing the book or buying the book and you're, you you know, sometimes when you're reading books like this and you've had any trauma yourself or you're in the thick of it, you don't necessarily read books. I don't always from start to finish, but I like the way it's set up because you can do deeper dives So perhaps we can do a deeper dive on one of the other topics. Was there anything else you wanted to say about this chapter and any other data to give everyone hope or just just to be aware before we wrap up? Well, I think the main message is that you can recover. And key, I mean, if you have been the child of someone who is disordered, and part of the key is to recognize that the problem is theirs, okay? I mean, and you're not responsible for for their problems, although that's what they tell you uh, because sociopathic parents are always blaming others and including their children. But if you need to plot your own course and not have your parent in it, I, that's an appropriate thing to do. You know what? It is. And I've actually seen it on the other side And exactly kind of full circle finishing off the show. That's exactly what I thought of as I was making my coffee. The the two most recent adults of sociopathic parents that I know had to go through the stages of death and dying of that there was not a healthy relationship and they need to close it completely. And I can tell you that they're a lot happier. And they did do every heroic effort, but then they realized it was just like putting your helmet on and banging your head. So detaching not engaging, and then surrounding yourself with healthy relationships. So Donna, thank you. Can everyone find out a little bit about where they can find you 
for more insight. And also you've got a lot of workshops, classes, and everything to offer. Yes. Um, I welcome everybody to visit lovefraud.com. That's the website. There's plenty of articles there uh, on this topic and others. Uh, We do have a lot of webinars that uh, people have found to be helpful. Um, I also have a YouTube show. So I I go on YouTube every Tuesday night, eight o'clock Eastern time and do a little presentation and then take questions. So um, certainly plenty of information that I'm happy to share all the time. Yes. And you sure do that. And I also feel like I just want to thank uh, your husband, Terry, because he's been by your side um, emotionally and financially and spiritually, you know, supporting you, your work, your body of work and all this great data. So thank you to you. Thank you to your husband and thank you to your team at Love Fraud. Thank you very much, Denise. I really appreciate it. Okay. Thanks everyone. Have a wonderful week.